0: Welcome to the worship service of St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. Under the leadership of our senior pastor, Dr. Bob Long, we are a family of faith that seeks to share God's love and bring hope to the world. We invite you to join us now for a message of
1: hope. Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if even death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Bob Golf is a lawyer, he's a writer, speaker, and he's also a real advocate for youth who are being oppressed in Uganda, India. He's an amazing guy. But he tells some stories of back when he was in college. Back when he was in college, he was working with Young Life. It's a college group, a college ministry. And he, one night in his senior year, he was there with his best friend, Doug, and they were playing the guitar kind of for the night when in walked this beautiful lady in the back of the room. He did not know her, but he was struck by her. And he leaned over to Doug and he said, There is Mrs. Golf. Well, I can tell you, it would take him five years and a whole lot of convincing before finally she would agree. And yes, she became Mrs. Golf, and they've been married now for more than 25 years. But it was kind of rocky getting started. That first night when he saw her, he was anxious to meet her. He went to the back and introduced himself, got her name. His heart was just fluttering. He was thrilled that he had now met her. And he would later ask her, said, do you remember that first night that we met? She had no recollection of it at all. (laughs) But it meant so much to him. And it was just 10 days before Valentine's. And so he finally figured out a perfect way to express how he was feeling. He went out and he got a four foot by eight foot piece of cardboard and then a second one and he glued them together on one side to make it like an envelope. Then on the front of the envelope he addressed it to Maria, that was her name, to Maria. And then he made a stamp that was about the size of a large bath mat there on the front of the card. And then he went and got another 4 by 8 sheet of cardboard and inside he wrote, Maria, will you be my Valentine? Very simple, straightforward. He thought that had the message. He had to borrow a friend's truck to get to her work. It turned out that she was working for an advertising agency. She worked on the 12th floor floor of a tall building. He got to the building and he started having trouble getting the card into the elevator. He finally managed to get it in the elevator. It went up to the 12th floor. The door opened and he started getting it out and it got stuck. Now you know what happens when the doors of an elevator stay open too long. Ding, 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 ding. It just starts making the noise and people start coming out into the lobby to see what's going on. He finally gets the card out of the elevator And he asked the receptionist, would you go get Maria? And now he's standing there in this little lobby beside this eight-foot-tall, four-foot-wide piece of cardboard valentine and all these people gathering around in the lobby looking at this strange guy. And for the first time, the thought hit him, this might not be a good idea. About that time, she came around the corner and saw him standing there with this enormous Valentine card and she was horribly embarrassed. She was humiliated. And he said, there's no doubt about it, but this event set our relationship back a good six months. For the next six months, she kept a good distance from him. She would speak politely to him. But her friends managed to come back and tell him whenever she saw cardboard, it made her want to run. But during that time, he still was struggling. He wanted to know her. He wanted to be closer to her. His heart was so full. And so he came up with the idea. He knew where she parked every morning. And so he decided that he would start making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Put it inside of a little baggie and then put it underneath her windshield wiper. Some days he included a note with the sandwich. And he said later, I know that seems a little weird. He said, I don't know why I came up with that idea. He never thought about himself as being the peanut butter and jelly stalker. (laughs) But he said, after they finally got to really dating, she said to him, why did you do that? And he thought about it and he said... When your heart is full of love, it has to be shared. Love is a do thing. And that is our belief and why we are having the special year we're having now at St. Luke's called the Year of Kindness, the Kindness Project. Because the Kindness Project is about love is a do thing. It's not about thinking, it's not about talking, it's about a do thing. We have said that for this entire year, you and I are making a commitment that based on Jesus' scripture, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That you and I are going to start each day thinking about how we have been loved by God. That's where we start, it's our foundation. We have been loved by God. A baby has been born in Bethlehem. God's expression of love. Emmanuel, God with us. We're going to think about we've been loved by God. Now we've been called to go and to love other people. It's a do thing. It's about us putting our love into action. And what I asked you last week, if you were here, was would you commit to do a kind act, one kind act a day, for the next 366 days. It might be small. It might be large. Sometimes it will be to a family member. Sometimes someone you work with. Maybe a stranger. But if we would all try to find something to do, not just waiting for the opportunity to come, it means you go out of your way to make the opportunity. To be looking and listening, to see the opportunity, and to be kind. In order to know if we're doing that, I told you we're going to give everybody a a bracelet. And if you didn't get one last week, they'll be out in the narthex. It's a bracelet that says the Kindness Project. Inside it's going to say, do something kind today. And I said, put it on your right hand, start the day, and it'll make you think about it. And when you do something kind, then put it on your left hand and you'll come home at the end of the day and you'll know you did it. I've also been using a church coin my church coin that I carry with me, I put it in my right hand pocket and then i sometimes then put it in my left hand pocket if I did a kind deed. I come home at the end of the day and I know I did it. It makes you think about it. I got to tell you this last week, I got six out of seven. Not bad. Six out of seven. I told you that I didn't expect anybody to get 366. But if there was 5,000 of us And we all got 200. That's a million acts of kindness. A million acts of kindness by this family of faith. I think of the ripple effects and what it's going to wind up doing. We said this is going to be the kindness project and what we're going to do. Because Jesus said, a new commandment I give you. That you love one another as I have loved you. By this will all people know that you're my disciples? As I started working on this kindness project, and I started thinking of the scriptures I wanted to preach on, I couldn't help but think about the story of Ruth. One of the kindest stories in all of the Bible. I love the story of Ruth. If you hadn't read it, go back and read it. It's four chapters long. We believe the story of Ruth took place during the time of the judges. Maybe a hundred years before King David, maybe about 1100 BCE. But it wasn't written down until hundreds of years later after the exile. You remember the people of Israel will get conquered by the Babylonians, carried off to Babylon, and when the Persians conquer the Babylonians they'll be allowed to go back home to the land of Israel, to Judah. As they come back home, Judaism takes two different routes. Two different schools of thought grow up. One begins to say, we need to pull within ourselves. No foreign wives. If you have married a foreign wife, you have to divorce her. We must be pure. We must be just who we are, God's chosen people. That was the message of Nehemiah and Ezra. But there was another strain of thought that developed. You read it in Isaiah 49. When Isaiah says, we need to be a light to the nations. It was the belief that yes, they were God's chosen people. But their responsibility was to tell the world about Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. And anybody, whether they are foreigners or not, if they want to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, they are welcome in God's family. Two different strains of thought pull within or let's go be a light to the nation. The stories that were written down after the exile that made that message were the book of Jonah and the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. It's really a story about Naomi and Elimelech. They lived in Bethlehem. They were good Jews. They had two sons. But a famine descended upon Bethlehem. And there was no food. And they looked across the Jordan River Valley to the east into the land of Moab. And there it was green and they decided to immigrate. Now That was a big deal. Moab were the enemies of Israel. But you do what you got to do to eat. They moved to Moab with their two sons. The sons grew up. They married Moabite women, Ruth and Orpha. A decade goes by, ten years. And then Elimelech dies. And then both of the sons die. And now Naomi looks back across the Jordan River Valley and decides it's time to go home. And so she says to her two daughter-in-laws, you need to stay here. Now understand in that day, you needed a man to take care of you if you were a woman. That's the way that it was. You needed a father, a husband, brothers, sons. It was so hard for a woman, single woman, a widow to be able to sustain herself in that day. The Bible talks all the time. What does it mean to take care of the widows? No, you're supposed to have had a man. You needed a man. And so what Naomi says to Ruth and to Orpha is go home to your families. You still got a dad, a mom, maybe brothers. You're still young enough. You'll get married. You will have children. For Naomi, it looked bleak. She had no husband, no sons, obviously no family back home still alive. She would be the widow all alone, trying to make it in the world, going home. It would be so hard. But what was best for the younger daughter-in-law? Stay here. They cried and they cried, and finally Orpha left. But Ruth utters those famous words, "Please don't ask me to leave you. Wherever you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God." And Naomi says, "Okay." They went back to Jeru- back to Bethlehem, and they get home. It's the time of the harvest. In that day, when you harvest the fields. You didn't get everything. You let some fall on the ground so that if the poor came behind, they could get something. And so Ruth went out into the fields and she began to harvest what she could. Now Boaz was a relative of Elimelech, Naomi's husband who had died. And he had heard Naomi was back with a Moabite daughter-in-law. And when he saw what Ruth was doing, his heart was moved with kindness And he wanted to bless her. And so he gave her food for her and for Naomi. He let her glean in the fields, not just behind the workers. In the end, Boaz and and Ruth would get married. And they would have a son named Obed. And they would have a son named Jesse. And he would have a son named David. David, the king of Israel. Ruth. The Moabite would be the great grandmother of the greatest king in the history of Israel, and it would put them in the direct descendancy of the family of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the story was written down to be able to say, maybe we're supposed to be a light to the nations, that we welcome all people who are different but who want to worship God. Into the family of God. And what you see is Naomi being kind to Ruth and Ruth to Naomi and Boaz kind to them. And when you see this kindness, it's the foundation of a family. That family is grafted into the family of God. The family of Jesus Christ. I believe that's true for us this day. That when you and I wind up being kind to family. We wind up grafting our family into the family of Jesus Christ. For Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this all people will know you're my family. Over this series we're going to talk about what does it mean to be kind to the stranger What does it mean to be kind to the poor? Today, I want to talk about what does it mean to be kind to those closest to you? What does it mean to be kind to parents, children, husbands, wives, brothers, to special friends? What does it mean to be kind to those closest to you? There's really just two things I want to say. First, kindness is listening to and loving. It's a do thing. Listening and loving. It's kindness. You know, we focus on all the kindness that Ruth showed Naomi. but Let's think about something. Why did Ruth choose to go with Naomi in the first place? She'd been living with her for more than 10 years. My guess is it's because Naomi had been so kind to Ruth. She must have been an amazing mother-in-law. One who would listen to their hopes and their hurts, their dreams and their grief. She must have been so kind to be there and to listen and to love them. And that's why they chose to say, we want to stay with you, Naomi. Because of the way they had been treated for so long. The thing that I see so much about our families and those closest to us is it sure is to take people easy to take people for granted you know i have the privilege of doing weddings all the time and i do weddings and when i do them i talk to couples about you know you're dating and i'm sure you've put your best foot forward you're trying to be nice you do kind things you look your best you say the right thing you hold your anger and then you get married Then you don't have to win them anymore. You have them. And as time goes by, you start to take them for granted. You forget to be kind to those closest to you and your own family. I got to tell you, I, I know I won the lottery when I got my parents. I was phenomenally blessed with the mother and father that I had. It wasn't until I became an adult and looked back, I realized that we didn't have a lot materially growing up. Later in life, they did well. They had those things, but not when I was a little boy growing up. But we had everything that was essential, and I felt that we were incredibly rich. Now, I remember so very much. My father was kind of quiet, but he loved athletics, and he was always there to play baseball and to play catch, and he was part of anything that I chose to be a part of. A wonderful dad. My mom was so outgoing, never met a stranger. She loved to talk. And what I remember about as a kid growing up is whenever I came in from school, she wanted to talk. And as a boy growing up, we talked and talked. And then I became a teenager. And somehow she reached across that rebellion to where we continued to talk about anything and everything. I I remember when I got married and I was going to be moving away. And my mother said to me, the thing I'm going to miss the most are our talks. She was a great listener. She knew what was going on in my life. She cared. We talked all the time. As a small kid going to school, my brother and I, she'd take us to school. We'd get to school and she'd stop and would have a prayer before we went into school. When I got older and I was driving, she had that prayer before we left the house. She prayed every day about what was going on in our lives and and what we might need and asking God's care. Now, I, I knew that they cared. They were so involved. You know, I was in a play when I was in kindergarten. And I would be in a school play 11 out of the next 13 years. Only my 7th and 8th grade year was I not in a play because it wasn't available. And then I did speech. I played baseball in the spring. I did drama in the fall. And they never missed a show. They saw every show that I was in through those years, those 11 shows through the years. Now if it's a two-week run, 14 shows, they came to opening night. They didn't come to all 14, but they didn't miss a show that I was in. I remember when I was in high school in the 10th grade, I was new in the drama department. They had lots of great actors. I was not cast. We we're going to be putting on a melodrama, and it was going to be a, um, a fun kind of a show, and I was working on the sets and the props. And then one day, Mr. Nemi, our director, said, um, I need some extras for a barroom scene. Are there any volunteers? It would get me on stage. And so he cast me as a drunken sailor. My role was to lie on a bench, passed out. I didn't have to say anything. I didn't have to do anything. I just needed to lie there. My eyes closed, looking drunk. And so that's what I did. The scene would come along. I I, had told mom and dad ahead of time and how excited I was I got to be on stage. And so they came opening night. And that scene came, the curtain went up, and there I was, lying on a bench, on stage, looking drunk. Mom and dad were there watching, and there was a lady sitting right next to my mom. And she leaned over to her and said, look at that. Some poor mother had to come tonight. (laughs) Just to see her son do that. My mother leaned back over and said, I bet she doesn't mind. And I knew she didn't mind because I knew my mother loved me. I knew that my mother and father loved me because they were there to listen, to know what was going on in my life, to be kind. It's a do thing. I knew how much they loved me through the years. One of the things that happens to us when we are living as family As we start taking each other for granted. Those who are closest to us, those who are most important to us, what I'm asking you this week is I want you to look around at those that matter to you. Family, your closest friends. Are you taking the time to listen, to love, to be kind? It's a do thing. Second, don't forget, you have to be present to be kind. When I think about Ruth and Naomi, Naomi was going home to a very difficult situation. Without husband or sons, she was the widow. Ruth and orphan, they had an opportunity. Family, get married again. But Boy, it didn't look good for Naomi. And for Ruth to speak up and say, wherever you go, I will go, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. To tell Naomi, you're not going to be alone. I'm going to be with you. What a gift. That was the kindness that Ruth showed to Naomi. Again, what I think happens in our world today is that you and I are so busy and we can get so involved in our hobbies and things we like that if we're not careful we forget to be present. Physically, emotionally, mentally. We might be there physically, but our mind is far away on something else. How easy is it for us to forget to be present? And if you're not present, it's hard to listen and to love. It's a do thing to be present. You know, it, it is one of those hard things. I know Marsh and I have been trying so hard to make sure we make it down to Temple to see one child and family, making it out to Colorado to see the other child and family, FaceTiming. We were FaceTiming grandkids skiing in Colorado yesterday, trying to be present so that you can listen and love. Some of you will remember the book from years ago now entitled Room for One More. It was made into a movie, actually with Cary Grant, back in the 1960s. Um, It was written by a lady named Anna P. Rose. True story. True story about a family who had three children, two girls and one boy. They were living in a small town. And this child, um, a girl, needed a home. And they said, we'll take her in for two weeks. And so they took her in for two weeks. And then they kept her a few more weeks. And finally they said, oh, there's room for one more. And they adopted her and then there came along a boy nine years old and then another boy and in the end they adopted two boys and one girl and so now they had three boys and three girls six kids and she wrote the story about what it was like raising these children and all these different backgrounds and it was during the 1930s and 40s when the story took place when we're trying to come out of the great depression and going into world war ii what was it like to take these other children into the family. There was always room for one more. Well, if you've ever read the book or seen the movie, you know there's a character, a a boy named Joey. Joey is the name in the book, but his real name was Jack Williams. And Jack Williams was a member of the St. Luke's family of faith for years and years. He and his wife, Margaret, wonderful people. I loved Jack. Jack was a pilot, and a Navy pilot in World War II. Um, He got married, settled here in Oklahoma City. Um, He was just a man who was always positive, always upbeat, never met a stranger, a person who was just a man of integrity. I love Jack. He played the piano, and we all had appreciated his playing the piano Wednesday night alive and all kinds of times. His son, John Michael Williams, and his family are still a member here at St. Luke's. But Jack and Margaret are now in the kingdom of heaven. But I was thinking about it because I've read the book and he told me the stories of how when he was nine years old, the, the person he became was not the person he was at nine years old. His mother had died. It turned out his father was a coal miner. He was not present. Jack got mixed up with all the other kids roaming the streets and getting into trouble. He finally helped a group of kids put some rocks on the railroad track and they derailed a train. And that's when the authorities came in and found him and took him out of that situation. And Anna heard about him and said, we'll take him for two weeks. They were down at the beach for the summer, a house they had rented. And so Jack came to live with them, two weeks. He was so malnourished, it turned out he literally was starving to death. When he came in that very first night, he came to the table and here's all this food and meat. And he said, how often do you have meat? And it was the other girl who had already been adopted who spoke up and said every day. Look, when I came, I started gorging myself and making myself sick because I was worried there wouldn't be more. There will be more. You don't have to hide your hamburger under your pillow for tomorrow. There will be more. And Jack sat down and began to eat and soon he was throwing up. And it took him to the doctor and it turned out that he was so malnourished, the doctor said you need to put him on warm milk and bread and some sugar every two hours for a number of days before his body will be able to take food. Which is what she did and then finally he was able to start eating. At the end of two weeks he began begging, please don't send me away. You can stay to the end of summer. So he stayed to the end of summer. But you got to understand, Jack was hard to get along with the kids. He had learned how to be braggadocious, and he would lie and cheat at the games, fighting with the other boys and girls. And when it finally came to the end of summer, it was time for him to leave. And he began begging Anna and saying, But I want to stay. Please let me stay. And she said, But you're not getting along with the other kids. Look at how hard this is. And he ran into the house and got the kids, and they all got together. And they started to talk. And to this day, nobody knows what was said. But when they came out of that meeting, the children came to Anna and said, We have voted. We want Jack to stay. We voted him into the family. They chose to be kind. And Anna said, I guess there's room for one more. And so Jack became a part of the family. They came home from the summer vacation to their house in the city. And when Jack walked in, there he saw a piano in the front room. He had never been able to touch a piano. And he sat down and he wanted to play My Country Tis of Thee. And he started looking for a note and then sing the next note and look for it. And he worked eight hours. He didn't eat dinner that night. Anna brought it and put it on the piano bench. He kept on playing. The next morning he got up and kept on playing and by that evening, he could play My Country Tis of Thee two-handed on the piano, just by ear. He had an incredible gift. And when Anna and her husband saw it, then they started paying for piano lessons. They got him into school and all to be able to play, and they began encouraging him and helping him to play in front of other people. And as he began to find that sense of self-confidence, and his own sense of worth, and his to be proud, then all those other problems started going away when you know that you're loved. And that's when he would become the kind of man that he became. So kind, so loving, such a good person. But when he first came to the house, kind of an interesting thing, he he came, and, and when they got into the house, he turned to Anna and said, can I call you mother? like the other children and she said yes yes you can and that night before they went to bed suddenly she heard mother yes Jack there really wasn't anything he needed I'm going to bed that's great Jack the next morning I woke up mother yes Jack I'm putting on my shirt that's great Jack Mother! Yes, Jack. I'm going to play the piano. That's great, Jack. He was hollering Mother all day long, day after day. And finally, one morning while they were in bed with her husband, she said, Why do you think he is doing this? And her husband said, Honey, it's simple. He wants to know you haven't evaporated. Don't you remember what he said when he came? He came in and said, can I call you mother? I want to be able to run home from school and throw open the door and shout, mother, just like all the other boys. And I want to know that you'll be there and answer. Everybody wants somebody To be there to answer. To be present. Because when you're present, then you listen and you can love. It is kindness that forms the foundation of our family. It's easy to forget and take one another for granted, it's easy not to be present when you and I make a commitment that we are going to show kindness to one another, to those closest to us, I believe you create family that is grafted into the family line of Jesus Christ. For Jesus said, A new commandment I have for you, that you love one another as I have loved you. For by this all people will know You're my family. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen. You've been watching the worship service of St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. If you would like a CD or DVD of today's worship service, please call us at 405-232-1371 or visit our website at www.StLukesOKC.org. We trust that you will experience God's love and hope throughout this week. Tune in next week for a message of inspiration and hope.